News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Ideally, Friday we'd make a decision. Uh, we would send staff away to come back. I mean, the kind of expenses we're talking about here have to be costed out. That is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. He was speaking with Arlinda Steele yesterday. So as we now know, a special council meeting has been set for Friday to talk about the mayor's motion to address homelessness, particularly the situation in Strathcona Park that has been talked about for, well, a couple months now. So to talk more about it, Councillor Pete Fry joins us now to talk about how realistic these measures are. Uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Um, yeah, my pleasure to be here. You know, I think uh, the mayor's reflecting uh, what most of us at council are feeling, which is that, um, that that the situation is just untenable. And despite all the the roles of senior government uh, to step up to the plate here, including, you know, the region of Metro Vancouver, the province of British Columbia, and of course the federal government, uh, when it comes to the safety and security of our city, I guess, you know, really the buck stops here with, with, with the city council. And so we're as frustrated with with uh, a lack of action on a, on a lot of this uh, and feel that I think collectively we need to do something. I will note that there's also a, a motion that was put on notice by Councillor Weeb uh, before we broke for summer uh, that's also been submitted. And I think that'll sort of have some influence on, on the outcome of right. the special meeting on Friday. But let me ask you this, though, because I think people have watched this unfold and they think, well, what is taking so long? Why is it that the city of Vancouver always seems like they're surprised that these encampments pop up when it seemed kind of obvious that this was going to happen? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is one of the frustrations with having a, a separate park board jurisdiction. So uh, every other local government in British Columbia has has control of park board at a council level. So we have it's a little bit more complicated with having our own separate park board because, of course, the park is is their property and they, they have to pursue um, mitigating efforts uh, on their own. And uh, so it was disappointing that they hadn't maybe acted a little bit more assertively to contain some of the Strathcona Park situation, for instance, uh, before it expanded to the entire park. But again, you know, when it comes to uh, the role of, of the province specifically, uh, housing housing's their department to deliver that that um, supportive and social housing for folks who are unsheltered and at risk of homelessness. And and as a city, uh, as soon as we step up to the plate on that particular front, uh, there's the fear that that the that the we're 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 taking that over from the province and we're going to be stuck with the bill. And I think that's where this sort of delicate. Uh, dance and balance has to has to happen and make sure that we're not getting stuck, but recognizing that the status quo is unacceptable. But, um, but know, the city <clears throat> council has been calling on the other levels of government to help out with this for some time now. The motion that you're talking about on Friday, the last thing in that motion says you're calling on, well, the mayor is calling on the other levels of government to pay for all of this. How realistic is it that that's suddenly going to happen just because of this motion? Well, you know, I've, I've I've personally had conversations with uh, staff and and ministers at a provincial level talking about this sort of thing, and and it's worth noting that the province currently does uh, support uh, the encampment to various degrees, um, financially and uh, through resourcing um, outreach workers that are working in the camp. Um, and and in conversation, there was some notion that they were perhaps prepared to do a bit more. So, I think the issue is 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 it acceptable to be 
funding this in in a in a public park, or can we do something a little bit better and still uh, get those committed resources and redirect them a little bit? So, do you think this motion will actually help? You know, I think I think I think it will. I think it'll probably have some amendments on the floor that will probably seek to be a little bit more assertive in in our action rather than than kicking this down the line and, and waiting for a staff report back and, and further delays. I think that there's a real appetite to, to move because we recognize that uh, the status quo is not acceptable, you know, with the, the changes to, with the end of the eviction moratorium um, this month, we're anticipating that we may see more, um, you know, more, more, more people experiencing uh-huh. homelessness uh, with, with, reality that, uh, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry's just introduced new measures uh, to curtail some of the, the nightclub and, and cabaret kind of experiences and, and, and uh, limiting liquor service to later, uh, not as late, recognizing that we're, we're experiencing a surge in, in COVID and that that, that that directly has, so COVID had immediate and direct impacts on the shelter system because our shelters aren't running at full capacity in order right. to allow folks to physically distance. So that in itself is per- precipitating in an additional amount of homeless and unsheltered folks on our streets, in our parks, in our public realm. And recognizing that that's not going away, we have we also, layered on top of that, have the opioid overdose emergency. We're dealing with some pretty significant uh, crises, homelessness, opioid overdose, and COVID-19, and it's time that we have to take a little bit more of a proactive sort of disaster relief response. As much as we would for any other natural disaster, right. be it a, an earthquake or a flood or what have you, there's a role for for the government to, to step in and uh, ensure that we're, we're maintaining the safety and security of all Vancouverites. And if, and if at the end of the day, the province isn't doing it in a way that we need it done, again, the buck stops here. We're the, we're the city of Vancouver. We have to take care of our city. And I think based on, on, on what many of us are experiencing, our, things need to improve here. Uh, and and you, you speak personally on that too, right? Because I mean, that's your neighborhood. You've had some run-ins yourself down there. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, is, it is my neighborhood. I'm, I'm out, uh, like you, I'm out with a dog every day and I get uh, lots of reports from folks about what's going on. And, and, um, and it's, it's, it's pretty upsetting uh, for a lot of people. There's, daily incidents that are, you know, not even necessarily a direct result of the encampment, but the, but the traffic that goes to and from the encampment and, and recognizing that we could, uh, in taking a more proactive approach, mm-hmm. really do a better job of, of, of locating uh, an appropriate facility, making sure that, that, it's, that it's managed well and that it has sort of a, a component that recognizes that, that we, we want to mitigate any knock-on effects that are affecting the adjacent businesses or residents, right. have you, depending on where the location is. And that, that that's a more effective approach, I think, to managing this problem and ensuring, again, the safety and security of all Vancouverites. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for joining us this morning. All right. Have a good day. You too. That's Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councilor, talking about the motion coming before Council this Friday that Mayor Kennedy Stewart is putting forward to deal with the homelessness issue. I mean, I, for one, will be watching very closely. When I read through the motion yesterday, I thought, is this going to do it? Because one of the last items on that list is ask for the federal and provincial governments to pay for all this. How likely is that to suddenly happen? Again, we'll be watching that unfold very carefully. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk about the new rules laid out yesterday by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Now, I would say nightclub owners, banquet hall operators, probably not happy about this, but an awful lot of people think this was the right way to go. To talk more about it, Nikki Reitmeyer joins us now. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. That really seems to be the case. We're running a poll on our CKNW Twitter account right now, and 90% of people say that they think this is a good thing or that they think officials should have gone even further. And then you only have about 10% of people who think that this is a bad thing, that now banquet halls and nightclubs once again will be closed, according to what Dr. Bonnie Henry announced yesterday. Yeah, I know. Really interesting results there. So so bars will still be able to operate under slightly different rules involving when they can stop serving liquor and what time they have to close. But nightclubs are absolutely shut down. But it was interesting, wasn't it, that Dr. Bonnie Henry said yesterday that she thought restaurants were doing a good job. Yeah, and I think that generally restaurants feel like they have been doing yes. a good job. They feel like they are following the rules. And, I, you know, I know for restaurants that I've been to, I think that generally they seem to be doing a, a good job. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that, you know, you perhaps feel the same way too. And I think that for many bar owners or restaurant owners, this news was surprising that suddenly there was going to be further restrictions placed upon them because they thought, well, hold on a second here. You know, we've really been trying to follow the rules and, you know, we've cut the number of patrons that have come into our establishments and, you know, we've moved around the seating so that we have physical distance and space between between other individuals. We've made sure that there's hand sanitizer available. We're doing the contact tracing. I know after I heard this news, I called up uh, Emily, she's the manager at a bar called Donnellan's. It's kind of a bar slash almost a nightclub that's on Granville Street. Mm-hmm. And I asked her what her reaction was when she heard this news. Well, it is a really hard situation because obviously the main priority is to dampen the spread of the virus. And so health officers do need to make some hard decisions. But at the same time, the hospitality industry in Vancouver has done an excellent job adopting and adjusting to the guidelines that were laid out. Like the onus really lies with the people that are patronizing bars and restaurants and nightclubs to just realize their personal responsibility and extend that into their everyday actions beyond just following the guidelines within venues because it has such a huge effect on us, right? Right. So you're saying that it almost feels like businesses and restaurants are being punished for the behavior of patrons. A hundred percent. How will these new rules, particularly the new operating hours, affect your business? Um, it's going to have a huge effect. Friday and Saturday nights in the industry are obviously the most lucrative, and we're now losing 10 of our busiest hours a week. So it'll take some pretty creative thinking to adapt to this, and I'm hoping that the city and province understand that implementation of the new business hours will mean that the industry will need huge help to recover. Hopefully that comes in the form of legislation that enables bars and nightclubs to recover from this, like extending wholesale pricing and changes in capacity and the patio program being extended. But I haven't heard anything about that yet. So hopefully they do have a plan in place. Mm -hmm. And what about staffing levels? I imagine, you know, if you're losing 10 of your most profitable hours of the week, that has to affect your ability to employ people. Um, It's definitely going to affect our staffing levels, which is really tough because they have been working really, really hard to keep customers themselves safe since reopening. Um, And it's been the most challenging period for the industry when it comes down to stress and mental health that I've ever seen. I'm hoping that we don't have to lay anyone off, but I do foresee a reduction in hours, which is also really hard. I do hope to see some industry-specific support from the government that will keep hospitality workers feeling safe from a reduction of hours 
that people have to deal with or people, workers in the industry that are unemployed now due to closures that are happening. So I'm surprised, Nikki, to hear some of the things there that Emily said that oh, about how disappointed they are and that the onus is on patrons because alcohol is their business and alcohol lowers inhibitions. So it's a bit naive to think you still think that people are going to come there, drink, and then make the best decision. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough to control people, especially when they've had a little bit too much to drink. But, you know, you are hoping that your patrons will behave themselves and they'll follow the rules so that your business can continue to serve them alcohol in the future. But their whole business model is people coming there and not behaving themselves, right? That's why they go to bars and nightclubs. Well, how do you stop people from being stupid is really what this comes down to at the end of the day. How do you stop people from being stupid? Do you take away the places in which they're being stupid or do you ask them to please just stop being stupid. It's it's really tricky. And yeah. I think that that's exactly what Dr. Bonnie Henry is trying to balance here, because taking away the places in which people are being stupid means affecting a lot of businesses and a lot of business owners who are doing so their best to make sure that people are safe while trying to keep their business still afloat. So true. So weigh in with your thoughts on this about the health officials closing nightclubs and banquet halls. Our poll is running on our Twitter account on CKNW, which is at CKNW. We want to know, do you think this is good because people People weren't behaving. Does it go too far? Does it not go far enough? You can also email me, Simi at cknw.com. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you can't go to nightclubs and no more banquet halls because those are being closed. What can you do? Well, how about a trip to something a little bit different, like the Museum of Surrey, maybe? Because guess what? It is set to reopen today. It's been closed for six months. So we thought, let's talk about what's going on there. Joining us now is Lynn Adam Safrey, the museum manager. Lynn, thanks for being here. Yes, thank you, Simi. It must thanks have been a, me. You're welcome. It must have been a very trying <laughs> six months to, to get to this day today. Yeah, the last six months have definitely been strange and uh, the different way to operate a museum. And so we are really excited to open now. Um, Today is our first day, as you know, for our modified reopening. Yeah, how's that going to work? What is a modified reopening? Well, um, the idea is, is that we're going to have a cautious and gradual reopening, and that's throughout the whole city. All the facilities in the city of Syria are doing that. Uh, the difference is is that health and safety is our top priority right now. And it means that when people come to the museum, when our visitors come, they are going to pre-register for tours. And we go through all the strict safety procedures based on BC Health, WorkSafe BC, etc. And um, when we do that, we are able to give visitors a really unique look at the museum in a way they didn't before because they're touring because they're enjoying the exhibits in a different way and a different way of learning uh, we really feel like this will be something that's unique it's something that will connect people but at the same time will keep people safe right so it's much more personal it sounds like more up close yeah definitely Uh, obviously a lot less people and um, people will be able to take their time and enjoy through these tours the different exhibits. Okay, tell me, about still, some, tell me about some of those exhibits that you've got. Yeah, so we still have our feature gallery open, and which is where we have larger exhibits. This year we opened the year with an exhibit called Arctic Voices, 
which uh, talks about Canada's north and our connection to the north, that will still be open, and we're really excited to show that so people can still get pictures with their polar bears and explore different um, aspects of the Arctic. And um, then there's the Surrey Stories Gallery, which is basically the gallery that tells the story of the city of Surrey, and it reflects who we are in Surrey our dreams, our aspirations, but also our past. And then one of the unique things we'll also have is when you wander between these exhibits, we'll have textile demonstrations. So we'll have staff who will be doing uh, demonstrations on the looms, talking about making textiles in various cultures um, throughout the city as well. That is so cool. So where, what is the website then, Lynn? Where can people find out more? Just go to surrey.ca slash museum, and that's the easiest way to find um, information about the museum. And then also, if you wanted to find information about other city facilities, basically, when you go to surrey.ca, just go to the About page, and you can find what's happening throughout the city there. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much. And listen, good luck with the reopening. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. It's another day back at school today for teachers and administrators getting classrooms and schools ready for the arrival of students, which begins tomorrow. It's been quite a process to get us to here. The last couple of days, I'm sure, have been very busy. In fact, weeks, uh, the last few weeks have been very busy as administrators also working to make all of this happen. So we wanted to check in, see how the preparations are going. Joining us now is Darren Daniluk, who's the president of the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association, also the principal at David Thompson Secondary in Invermere. Darren, thank you for being here. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh boy, what have the last few weeks been like for you? Well, I think you described them well. They've been extremely busy um, with our principals and vice principals and district staff uh, steadily and furiously at work trying to reconfigure timetables and redesign uh, school in BC. So that's what's going on for all principals and, and vice principals across the province. Have there been challenges? And if so, what have they been? Well, I think that the largest challenges have probably been just, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, the redesign of timetables. They're you know, a significant feature of, of high school, particularly. And uh, those plans that get underway, well, typically February and March of the year for the coming fall. So all those plans had been um, ironed out, schedules were created, all the details were sort of in place, and then we had to pivot and change them. So that's probably been one of the most significant things to, to redesign. Yeah, and some of those timetables, are you getting uh, creative? <laughs> yeah, they are. I've, um, a, a majority of secondary schools have moved to a quarter system, which isn't a new creation. Uh, back in the 90s, it was quite a popular uh, design for timetables, but um, many schools this, this fall have taken that on, and that you know, causes, obviously, significant changes in how the day looks and the structure of your day, and not to mention the teaching design for that, too, as now students are focusing on two courses in a, in a, in a term rather than a semester. Right. What's the actual like situation inside the schools then, Darren? Like, We'll just use your school as an example. Mm-hmm. What kind of work have you had to do at David Thompson to get ready for the students? Well, actually, I'm not in my school uh, at this time. Uh, I have been uh, released to to serve in this current role as the president of the association for the next term. 
So there is somebody else in my shed and my school, but I know that they have been working uh, hard. Now, that particular school has not uh, modified to a quarter system, but nonetheless, their timetable has had to be reconfigured in that. Uh, applying the cohort model, which is probably the second largest challenge uh, in conjunction with the timetables, applying the cohort model, they've had to retool class uh, configurations and which students are working together with others. That particular school is using each grade as a cohort just because of its size, and that means uh, a great deal of work had to be undertaken to prevent or to uh, change the design of courses so we didn't have cohort models mixing in elective courses, and that, again, took a great deal of fine-tooth combing uh, through student schedules and redesigning. I can imagine, yeah. yeah. Uh, with those individual classrooms then, so is that being left up to teachers to like figure that out and how are you know all the students going to fit in here? You're talking about the physical space of yeah. the classrooms? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I don't know that it's being left to teachers entirely. In some respects, uh, some districts, in fact, yesterday would have been the first day uh, teaching staff and support staff had actually been inside the school perhaps since March. So I'm sure that prior to yesterday, some work had been undertaken to put fixtures in classrooms, move things around, and, and try to space them out so that we were meeting the, the recommended requirements. How, how would you say that communication has gone, Darren? I mean, you're obviously working with the different school districts, vice principals and principals are, so it has to go from you know the Ministry of Education to mm-hmm. the school district to the administrators, then to the teachers to get to the students. What has the process been like? <laughs> Well, as you described that chain of, of uh, communication, uh, it is like that. It is a chain. You know, we have uh, statements made and decisions and policies and guidelines developed at a, an upper level, and then it is filtered down and transferred through uh, the various levels. I, I believe the communication is being good. Sometimes uh, there's been, uh, I don't know if delay is the correct word, but interpretation perhaps, time for that to take place. It's been asked of me before, you know, that... You know, a lot of seems to have been left to, to districts to determine the, the directions and guidelines coming from the province are rather broad. But that's out of necessity, I think. The specific context of various districts and schools is unique, and the finer points of plans do have to be developed at the local level. Uh, and again, that does take time. So. so it's a learning process for everybody, it sounds like. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, Darren, best of luck. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. That's Darren Daniluk, president of the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association, also principal at David Thompson Secondary in Invermere. It is that chain. I've been thinking a lot about that the last few weeks of how the communication has been flowing from the Ministry of Education to the school districts. The school districts then have to communicate to the administrators, which is the principals, the vice principals. They have to get things ready for the teachers. Teachers have to come in and get things ready for the students. Tomorrow, we're going to start finding out the results of all these efforts, this extraordinary efforts that have been made uh, to get us to this point uh, when students start to come back to the classroom. And it has been a long road, last couple of months, and a lot of hard work. And I'm sure there's, you know, students out there who are a bit nervous, parents who are a bit nervous as well. You know, weigh in with your thoughts, simi at cknw.com. How are you feeling with kids heading back to school tomorrow? I know it could be a challenge for other parents, perhaps. 
perhaps not as much. I know that many parents went back to work, you know, during the summer. Uh, I know that camps have been busy. I myself, on my drive home, I see a number of kids bike riding camps, you know, groups of kids being taught how to ride bikes. And I see them crossing the street and I think, okay, well, there are some day camps going on out there. So kids are in groups together. So so a lot of parents must be comfortable with that. So you tell me how you think this week is going to go here. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, it's devastating. I mean, this is, we did not see this coming, even with the recent spike in cases. And I think there was a, a general excitement amongst the industry that, hey, you know, whether you're open or not, that, you know, we should be able to get through this and weather this. Apparently not. That is Hospitality Vancouver Association President Paul Stoylan after learning that nightclubs and banquet halls have to close and restaurants and bars have to stop serving alcohol, last call essentially, at 10 p.m. We wanted to get more reaction to this today now that there's been some time to kind of think about this. Joining us is Ian Tossenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, thanks for being here. Hey, welcome. Simi, how are you? I am good, thank you. Now, Paul Stoyland was just saying how they're kind of surprised by this. Were you surprised by this? Well, I, I get no. I, I mean, we we had a call uh, about an hour before it was announced, just at the Premier's office. But if you looked at the numbers, I think we were all very concerned that the numbers were going the wrong place. And uh, and and so, you know, where is the problem? And we were, were starting to feel a lot of, uh, problems in, in areas of Vancouver and uh, parties and people. And so, you know, Dr. Henry wants to, you know, uh, reduce the bubble. She wants us to have less contacts. What she's doing makes logical sense. I'm just thankful for our industry that in the case of restaurants that we, you know, we have to stop serving alcohol after 10 o'clock. But we, if we're serving food, we can still stay open, which is great. And um, and I'm also grateful that we didn't get a complete shutdown because uh, that would just kill this industry forever. Now, she did go out of her way to say that she thought that restaurants were doing a good job. I know, it's surprising. Um, and we have done a great job. We, you know, we wrote the opening plan for the government and a number of things. Uh, what I'd like to see, actually, is just a little bit of a, an acknowledgement of that. And so as long as a restaurant perhaps is serving food, that it might be able to extend its, its liquor service to 11. But the point is, is that you know, if she if she changes the hours for us, um, and the bars are closed, you're gonna you're gonna start to change the mix again. And I, I think we just have to bear. Unfortunately, this it's gonna be. Hope it's short term, right. and there is gonna be some layoffs, particularly in nightclubs and and bars. That's inevitable because that's where they make a lot of their money. In our case, I guess we're just gonna have to go maybe have dinner an hour earlier. Um, so it's gonna impact the big restaurants downtown that after sort of ten o'clock would become more of a a social lounge situation. Right. But I'm hopeful that if we get the numbers right, we can get back to you know where we were sort of headed before. Yeah, let's talk about the numbers and in terms of the people who are going back to eat out. I know you know every restaurant that I've gone to, I feel like for the vast majority of them have done a really good job, whether it's putting up the plastic shields, whatever the case may be. Is there room, do you think, for them to adapt with what's going on with the nightclubs and the uh, banquet halls? Uh, you mean in terms of reduced hours? Yeah, like maybe, as you say, turning it into more of a social lounge situation. Can you welcome a few yeah. people later? Yeah, I mean, we certainly could. But, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, uh, I think some of the unintended consequences may be this. You know, people sort of go, it's been for 10, so they start to order up, uh, you know, too much. They um, decide, forget this, we're going to go have private parties like we saw in West Vancouver last week. 
So I think we have to really make sure that we balance this. We can't put it entirely, you know, our responsibility is to do what we can to change the numbers. But there's a lot of things beyond restaurants, bars, and nightclubs that are contributing to this. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're going to see, especially going to the fall, less emphasis on people wanting to be out after 10 o'clock, although, you know, we are working in a winter uh, patio program. But I think those are going to be early uh, evening Mm -hmm. activities anyway. So... We're going to have to adapt. I mean, there's no choice here and continue to set the pace on doing it right and keeping the public safe. You said that you think there's other things going on here. What do you think some of those things were that led to this? Well, I think you, I think the connection is uh, alcohol fuels, lack of common sense. And then they're looking at the sources of that and say, well, maybe it originated in, you know, Simi's nightclub or Simi's bar or maybe they're sitting in a lounge in a restaurant and and then they head out afterwards. So I think what they're trying to do is just take all these occasions and put them into into some sort of, in, into buckets and control them. Then the problem, I think, unfortunately, too, is that a lot of this is in the downtown urban areas. I think you're going to see a way different situation if you go to Surrey, Burnaby, Kelowna. Um, and so it's a little concerning that we've got one rule right across British Columbia. I think there's a lot of communities that are going, what? Like, this wasn't even yeah. part of our problem, so... But I, I think, City, we're going to work as we have done with, with Dr. Henry to make sure that, you know, that we can be a positive force in this and acknowledge this and just work with the industry how we can, you know, you know not take advantage of this, but work with this so that we, you know, curb the sort of economic right. uh, damage that it could cause. Do you do think that perhaps the time of year, as you kind of mentioned and alluded to there, might have played a part in this with the warmer weather and people wanting to kind of cut loose for a little bit, that that now might change? Yeah, it's almost like Dr. Henry took us off the leash and said, okay, go have fun for two months. Now the leash is back on us. Um, you know, because she sort of said, okay, it's, you've had your fun now, now we're going to reduce this. But I think you're right. I mean, back in the fall back into school, you know, uh, people back into business after Labor Day holidays over, I think naturally we're going to see a calming effect in, you know, in sort of late hour uh, entertainment. It's going to be Friday and Saturday nights. You know, the, the honest truth is it's going to be Friday and Saturday nights in bars and nightclubs in Vancouver that are going to really feel the impact of this one. Restaurants will be fine. I mean, if you want to have order a bottle of wine at 10 o'clock and drink it to 11 with the meal you had, you still can do that. And if you want to eat after 11 o'clock, providing the restaurants not serving alcohol, you can still do that. So there's right. some things that we can work with here. What has employment been like in the restaurant industry, would you say, Ian? Is it is it getting back to where it was before? Uh, we estimate of the 190,000 people in the industry that uh, likely about 80,000 people are still out of work uh, for various reasons, um, you know, related right. to reduced hours and businesses closing and stuff. So, no, we're, we're a long ways away from that. Okay. Um, the government has helped, though, and I think, you know, as they as they tell businesses that can't operate, they, they need to really emphasize more uh, federal government on wage subsidy, uh, the rent program, which has been a miserable disaster. They should change that. The B.C. government on wholesale liquor pricing and the delivery of uh, alcohol with food if people want to stay home. All these yeah. things are going to be super important to us going forward. Lots more to talk to you about, Ian. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Ian Tostenson, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. This is Mornings with Simi. It's going to look very different, as you can imagine. Um, We have about 44% of our student residents returning to campus to live in residence. 
So that is Matthew Ramsey. He is with UBC. We talked to him yesterday about what the return to class for students at UBC is going to look like, but also what kinds of supports are in place for that transition. Also, a lot of students who, you know, wanted perhaps some kind of refund on tuition. Well, what we were told is that the school is providing a lot more money in terms of bursaries and financial support for students this year. So we thought, let's check in from the student perspective about how things are going. Joining us now is Cole Evans president of the Alma Mater Society at UBC. Cole, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on this morning. What's the picture like for students right now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that as everybody knows, it's a really crazy year. And, you know, today is a really exciting day for a lot of students. I mean, we have a lot of first year incoming students who have their first full day of classes today. But it's also kind of a time of a lot of uncertainty. I, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of a really unprecedented time in the post-secondary sector. And so I think that, you know, there's a lot of students who are really um, anxious about what the year is going to look like. And uh, there's still a lot of questions that a lot of students have, whether it comes to, um, you know, support they're getting, you know, how online classes are going to go, you know, maybe if they're graduating this year, what their job prospects are going to look like. So, uh, there's definitely still a lot more work to be done as far as uh, making sure that uh, everybody's supported. Have you seen any kind of increase in support from UBC? Is there more of an effort being made to reach out to students to help them? Yeah, I mean, I think this year, you know, we've been working really closely with the university to try and uh, free up, you know, larger pockets of money to uh, support students um, proactively. So, you know, one of the things we were able to do uh, earlier this year was we worked with the university to to put uh, just under $2 million towards um, an emergency bursary fund for students uh, that was COVID-19 specific. Um, I know the university has also been, you know, reaching as much as they can to, um, you know, find other areas that they can put into that uh, student aid fund. And I know on our end, too, at the AMS, um, we've also been working very actively to try and find ways that we can uh, support students financially as well, because we know that uh, um, there's definitely a lot of uh, UBC students who are going through challenging times right now. I can imagine, yeah, not necessarily being, you know, fully back on campus, you know, finding rental housing is always so expensive. So is there access to more money from UBC? Are they helping with that transition? Because students are still paying full tuition. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's, it's uh i'm sure you heard from from matt uh yesterday as well i mean you know it's it's challenging too because i you know i i do agree with the university's assertion that they are facing increased uh costs this year because of that transition um you know we're on the ground with them all the time and so we can definitely see that but i think the the big thing that we've been stressing with the university is that it's important that students um feel that they're getting value for their money um, you know, it's not good enough just to say that, oh, well, you know, we're transitioning to online learning, so um, it's going to be more expensive. But we want to make sure that when students are attending those virtual classes, when they're, you know, engaging in the campus community online, when they see the supports the university is making available to them, that they can look at that and be like, okay, I understand that, you know, I'm, I need to pay into these fees and, I'm, and I feel like I'm getting everything back from the university. But as soon as that's not happening, then we run into an issue. So we've been pushing really hard to make sure that the university has not only, you know, providing financial support to students, but also a lot of proactive supports as well. So things like, you know, proactive mental health support, you know, making sure, again, like you said, that students who need housing get housing. You know, the university very recently also, you know, 
improved its uh, rules around, you know, how they're handling students who need to quarantine when they come back to the city. So things like that that aren't just strictly money-based, but also contribute to, you know, the general well-being of a student um, and their time here. Well, listen, best of luck. I know it's going to be really challenging the next few months, but thanks for joining us, Cole. No, absolutely. Thanks again for having me. That's Cole Evans, president of the Alma Matter Society at UBC. A very challenging time for post-secondary students here as well for all the reasons that Cole laid out there as well. You're still, you're not necessarily back on campus, right? A lot of stuff is online right now. You're still paying full tuition, uh, but maybe you probably didn't get the summer job you thought you were going to get and getting a job right now to help, you know, your expenses also challenging. So there's a lot going on with post-secondary students there. And if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Don't forget, we also want to hear your comments about the closures of nightclubs and banquet halls in B.C., Overwhelmingly, the response we've gotten on our Twitter poll that we have been conducting, albeit unscientifically, you're talking about more than 800 people who've now weighed in, overwhelmingly saying they think this is a good thing and it doesn't even go far enough. What about you? You can also email me, simi at cknw.com.